Intelligent and profound, challenging and daring, Virginia Woolf possessed something truly unique and something that would shine through her work. Though she was steeped in the classical tradition of writing, she liked to experiment with her craft, and her stream-of-consciousness type of writing would make a large impact on the literary world. Some, if not most, will argue that it takes determination and, at times, perseverance to find the melody in her writing. But when the tune is found, you might find it was well worth it. Virginia Woolf as an individual was also a very intriguing and unique person. She was impressively talkative, not least because of her wide imagination, and would greet new people she met with descriptions and details about alternative versions of their lives, ones she had made up for them, both to the astonishment, confusion, and delight of her peers. In her letters, she would describe things how she felt them and how she felt they ought to be, rather than how they actually were. She had a quick-firing and imaginative mind, one that would allow her to create, but that also brought her much despair. Through the course of ten novels, Virginia Woolf lifted veil after veil to reveal what she perceived as the secret meaning of life, which is what she was searching for. One can only hope that she found it, at least in sections of her life, before the end. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, authors, and details. I am your host, Jason Moore Harden, and today we're exploring the life of Virginia Woolf and her last book, Between the Acts. Between the Acts was first published on July 17, 1941. This synopsis, however, comes from the 1988 Grafton edition. It is set in rural England within a single day in 1939. Worlds meet, but never unite. Miss Latrobe has organized a pageant, a dramatic version of Orlando. During the performance, the spectators are held together. Unity appears to be triumphant, but not for long. When the play ends, they fall apart again. And even between the acts, the semblance of unity is lost. Quote, Time, unfortunately, though it makes animals and vegetables bloom and fade with amazing punctuality, has no such simple effect upon the mind of man. The mind of man, moreover, works with equal strangeness upon the body of time. An hour, once it lodges in the queer element of the human spirit, may be stretched to fifty or a hundred times its clock length. On the other hand, an hour may be accurately represented on the timepiece of the mind by one second. End quote. Virginia Woolf was born Adeline Virginia Stephen on January 25, 1882 in Kensington, London into a privileged household. Her father, Sir Leslie Stephen, was vastly perceived to be a very cultured and notable historian, author, and critic, as well as a mountaineer, while her mother, Julia Princip Duckworth, was a renowned beauty. 
She had been born in India, where she had served as a model for several pre-Raphaelite painters, but she was also a nurse and wrote a book about the profession. Both her parents were free thinkers for the time, and both had been married and widowed before marrying each other, before Virginia came into the world. Because of this, Virginia had three full siblings, Toby, Vanessa, and Adrian, as well as four half-siblings, Laura, George, Gerald, and Stella. The family of ten lived under one roof at 22 Hyde Park Gate, Kensington. In spite of, or maybe because of, growing up in bustling London, Virginia was a sensitive child who was late to learn speech. But when she finally did begin to talk, she proved to have a vocabulary much grander than most children her age. She was energetic and excitable, and for this reason, she was prone to accidents. Also possessing quite a temper, she would fall into fits that her family referred to as purple rages, which might have derived from her face turning said color during episodes. Most of her childhood memories were not of London, however, but of St. Ives in Cornwall, where the family spent every summer until the death of her mother in 1895. St. Ives, a beach town at the very southwestern tip of England, would go on to inspire her to write what is considered one of her masterpieces, To the Lighthouse. The Stevens summer home, Talland House, which still stands today, looks out at the dramatic Portminster Bay and has a view of the Godrevy Lighthouse, which inspired the novel. In her late memoirs, Wolfe recalled St. Ives with a great fondness. As was customary at the time, Virginia was homeschooled by her parents and received very little formal education. It was expected that girls learn only the rudimentary skills and then marry, and even in an intellectual home, such as the Stevens household, the tradition held true. By all accounts, their parents were lacking when it came to teaching, finding it difficult to understand why the girls struggled to learn things that came so obvious to them. That both parents had short tempers didn't make it any easier to learn from them, and it soon fell to Virginia to educate herself. For this reason, she felt that she missed out on a proper education, though the rigid reading assignments she placed upon herself would prepare her very well for her future career. She had since a very early age, along with her sister Vanessa, decided that they would both embark on artistic professions. Vanessa would be a painter, and Virginia, of course, would be a writer. Both prospects would come to fruition in adulthood. Despite the occasional woes and outburst of rage, Virginia was mostly a curious, light-hearted, and playful girl. She showed an interest in writing from early on and started a family newspaper, the Hyde Park Gate News, to document her family's humorous anecdotes. However, Early traumas would cast a very dark shade over her lightheartedness as well as her childhood. Arguably, the worst of these traumas included being sexually abused by her half-brothers, George and Gerald. Her sister Vanessa suffered the same fate, and Virginia would later write about the incidents in her autobiographical essays, A Sketch of the Past and 22 Hyde Park Gate. In 1895, at the age of 13, she also had to cope with the sudden death of her mother from rheumatic fever, which along with the sexual abuse led to Virginia's first mental breakdown. After the death of his wife, 
Virginia's father was weighted by grief and made little to no effort to try to move on. Due to this, Virginia's older half-sister, Stella, took the role as head of household, keeping the family together. Stella would marry, but continued living in the house in order to take care of her siblings. Unfortunately, she would only be married for four months before she, too, met an early end. With her father still consumed by grief and sorrow, and her half-brothers and sisters going off to school and moving out, Virginia fell deeper into loneliness. It did not help matters at all that she was continually around her father, and therefore the main recipient of his gloom. Virginia continued her education and would study German, Greek, and Latin at the ladies' department of King's College London. It was there she would be introduced to feminism, something that would influence her writing. However, it would be the death of her father by stomach cancer, nine years after the death of her mother in 1904, that impacted her the most. After his death, 22-year-old Virginia, stricken with guilt and convinced that she had failed to appreciate him while he was around, sunk deeper into depression. This led to a severe mental collapse where she would allegedly hear birds singing in Greek, among other delusions. Eventually, it all became too much to bear and she attempted suicide by leaping out of a window. She survived the fall, but thereafter was briefly institutionalized. Later that same year, after being released from the institution, she wrote the article Haworth, November 1904, and it was published in The Guardian on December 21st. This was merely the beginning, and she was soon writing reviews and other short pieces for the paper, and by 1905, she was writing professionally as a contributor for the Times Literary Supplement. She also taught at Morley College at the time, an evening institute for working men and women who weren't able to attend school during daytime. Here she had her first experience with people who not only wrote books, but also read them. She appreciated their input and took to heart their struggles. The following year, unfortunately, would come more grief as Wolf's 26-year-old brother, Toby, died from typhoid fever after a family trip to Greece. Despite not having to work at Morley College at all because of her family wealth, and despite the tragedy of her brother's death, she remained at the school for another three years. On August 10, 1912, Virginia Stephen married writer Leonard Wolfe and took his surname. Despite his low material status, Virginia referring to Leonard during their engagement as a penniless Jew, the couple shared a deep bond that would carry on for the rest of her life. Three years later, in 1915, she published her first novel, The Voyage. It had been a long time coming as several years before marrying Leonard, Virginia had begun working on the novel. The original title had been Melambrosia, but after nine years and innumerable drafts, it was published as The Voyage. In 1925, Wolfe received rave reviews for Mrs. Dalloway, her fourth novel. The mesmerizing story interweaved third-person interior monologues and raised issues about feminism, mental illness, and homosexuality in post-World War I England. Her fifth novel, released in 1927, To the Lighthouse, 
was another critical success and considered revolutionary for its stream of consciousness storytelling. It was obvious that she was a talent to be reckoned with. Quote, you cannot find peace by avoiding life. End quote. Concerning her writing habits, she used to spend two and a half hours every morning writing on a three and a half foot tall desk with an angled top that allowed her to look at her work both up close and from afar. This would hold true through her earlier years. In later years, however, once she had reached a certain level of success, she would mostly do her writing between 10 a.m. and 1 p.m. before deciding to stop. The afternoon would be spent writing letters or writing in journals. In the evening, she would either host guests or spend time reading. Virginia Woolf was as equally opinionated about the right way to write as she was about the right way to read, but also passionate about the publishing process. Already in 1917, the Wolfs bought a used printing press and established Hogarth Press, their own publishing house operated out of their home. Virginia and Leonard would go on to publish some of their own writings, as well as the work of Sigmund Freud, Catherine Mansfield, and T.S. Eliot, among others. As stated earlier, she enjoyed experimenting with her writing. She liked using several literary tools, including compelling and unusual narrative perspectives, dream states, and free association prose. Her work often explored her fascination with the marginal and overlooked of an ordinary mind on an ordinary day, as she put it in her essay, Modern Fiction. In The Art of Biography from 1939, she argued that the question inevitably is whether the lives of great men are the only stories which should be recorded into history. Should not the lives of anyone who has lived a life and left a record of that life be worthy of a biography? Worthy of the failures as well as the successes the humble as well as the illustrious. This, of course, makes great sense when one considers the minutiae and details of daily life and thoughts she explored in her works. It goes without saying that she used to breathe words throughout her life, which included reading vigorously. She used to read several books at once, many of them varied in style and topic often fiction and poetry, classical and contemporary, at once. This she did so she could compare and evaluate them against each other and ultimately learn from them. This blending and comparing of other writers' work is something she did with her own work as well. Mrs. Dalloway, for instance, came to be after Wolf blended two shelved short stories where she had experimented with an early stream of conscious style. These two short stories in question were Mrs. Dalloway in Bond Street and The Prime Minister. Contrary to the stereotype of a writer, always holed up in solitary confinement from the world, always writing in a dark room and alienated from the world at large, Virginia had an active and versatile social life. She enjoyed spending time with people of both sexes, of varied professions and backgrounds. She struggled actively to bridge the gaps from her upper-class roots and would frequently give talks at the Working Women's Guild. She was one of varied interests, which included everything from politics to art, and was very vocal about her opinions. 
She also found it to be a good mental exercise to spend time in social circles. If you don't notice the color of a woman's dress in real life, how can you in fiction, she would argue. Though she took pleasure from social engagements, her love for writing was unmatched. It was such that she wrote as much and as often as she could every day that she felt healthy. When she made a significant amount of money with a room of one's own, she used that money to invest it right back into writing as it permitted her to try her hand out on one of her more experimental pieces, The Waves. For her, it was the process that was the reward, more so than the end result. But, of course, as with any great writer, she had self-doubts about her works. While working on her second novel, she wrote, I wrote all morning, with infinite pleasure, which is queer, because I know all the time that there is no reason to be pleased with what I write, and that in six weeks or even days, I shall hate it. She questioned her own satisfaction over her work and was most often her harshest critic, which in turn made her strive for quality, and the result is obvious on the page. As with anything, particularly in arts, bad performers of the craft typically don't worry about the quality of their work. Great writers, on the other hand, worry all the time, and because of that, the quality of their work is substantial. Quote, I don't believe in aging. I believe in forever altering one's aspect to the sun. End quote. Wolf published The Years, the final novel published in her lifetime, in 1937. The following year, she published Three Guineas, an essay which continued the feminist themes of A Room of One's Own and addressed fascism and war. Throughout her career, Wolf spoke regularly at colleges and universities, penned dramatic letters, wrote moving essays, and self-published a long list of short stories. By her mid-forties, she had established herself as an intellectual, an innovative and influential writer as well as a pioneering feminist. Her ability to balance dream-like scenes with deeply tense plot lines earned her much respect from peers and the public alike. But despite her outward success, she continued to suffer regularly from debilitating bouts of depression, anxiety, and dramatic mood swings. Emerging from her work on the years and grieving for her nephew, Julian Bell, who had been killed in the Spanish Civil War in 1937, she turned to Between the Acts. She worked on the novel from 1938 when World War II was threatening until 1940 after the conflict had begun and when London was under attack. The book describes the audience of a play at a festival in a small English village just before the outbreak of the Second World War. Since the play is inside the story, much of the novel is written in verse, and it is thus one of Wolfe's most lyrical pieces. There is explanation, but no development of character in between the acts. By this, Wolfe seems to be making the point that for all the progress we've made as a civilization, Human beings haven't changed much from the time when we were prehistoric half-apes. Although fashions change, days are sunny and beautiful or rainy and melancholic, the essential heart of man remains much the same. 
Their home in London was destroyed in the Blitz in September and October, and Wolfe therefore completed the first drafts of Between the Acts in November 1940 while living at Monk's house in Sussex. Her biography of Roger Fry had been published in July that year, but she was disappointed with his reception. Because of these circumstances, she would fall into another of her deep depressions. Though both her publisher and her husband had reassured her about the quality of Between the Acts, on March 27, 1941, Virginia Woolf wrote a letter to her publisher, John Lehman. In the letter, she confided her worries about Between the Acts. She felt that the novel was too silly and trivial to bring out in its current form, and her aim was to revise the novel for publication later in the year. Her husband, Leonard, always by her side, was quite aware of any signs that pointed to his wife's descent into depression. He saw, as she was working on what would be her final manuscript, that she was sinking into a deepening despair. The surrounding stress factors weren't helping either. World War II was raging, and along with her husband, who was Jewish, Virginia had decided that if England was invaded, they would commit suicide together. Unfortunately, Virginia's depression would reach more devastating levels long before any possible invasion took place, and the following day, before John Lehman had even received the letter, she would take her life. Unable to cope with her despair, on March 28, 1941, Virginia Woolf pulled on her overcoat, filled its pockets with stones, and walked into the River Ouse. As she waded into the water, the stream took her with it, and she disappeared into the river. It would be three weeks before the authorities found her body. Leonard Wolfe had her cremated, and her remains were scattered at their Sussex home. At the time of her death, Wolfe had yet to complete a final draft of the novel, and a number of critics consider it to be unfinished. This, despite the fact that the book has a note by Leonard Wolfe where he writes that he does not believe Virginia would have made anything more than a few small corrections and revisions before passing it as a final draft. As well as being cherished by book lovers and the literary circle, Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway was adapted into a film in 1997 starring Vanessa Redgrave. It would also go on to inspire the 1998 novel The Hours by Michael Cunningham and the subsequent 2002 film adaptation. As is well established, Virginia Woolf was fond of words, and maybe because of this, her final words would be to her husband. In her final piece of writing, she wrote, I know that I am spoiling your life, that without me, you could work. And you will, I know. You see, I can't even write this properly. I can't read. What I want to say is, I owe all the happiness of my life to you. You have been entirely patient with me and incredibly good. I want to say that everybody knows it. If anybody could have saved me, it would have been you. Everything is gone from me but the certainty of your goodness. I can't go on spoiling your life any longer. I don't think two people could have been happier than we have been. As usual, I leave you with one final quote from the GOAT. So long as you write what you wish to write, that is all that matters. 
and whether it matters for ages or only for hours, nobody can say. But to sacrifice a hair of the head of your vision, a shade of its color, in deference to some headmaster with a silver pot in his hand, or to some professor with a measuring rod up his sleeve, is the most abject treachery." End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemore Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make the show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash house of words. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Nemore Hardin. And music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Nemore Hardin.